I'm here with Chris Dowsett, and um, this is a bit of a makeup episode because we we sat there together with our friend Olaf, and we recorded a fantastic episode all about computer hardware, and then my computer betrayed us, and uh, so uh, now we, we don't have that episode. It'll be the forever lost episode of the Stallman Podcast, but that's okay. We're going to redo it, uh, and, and Chris is here, and we're going to talk about something else because... Uh, I don't want to be too late in releasing this, but hey, Chris, thanks for coming back. Hey, you're welcome. And it is kind of unfortunate that we lost that episode because as I keep telling you, sometimes my brain feels on and sometimes it doesn't feel as on. And we, I think, had a great conversation where I was so stoked when we pressed stop that it was going to have this information and quality, this, that, and then it turned out to completely bug out on us, and you sent that file to uh, to us to listen to, and it's just garbage. <laughs> like, it's unusable yeah. tech garbage. And I was monitoring it as we recorded, like, monitoring through the source, and it that was fine. So, anyway. I, I, I don't know. That kind of puts that thought in your head. Like, what do you do, given if you needed redundancy and backup? I know you said you usually have a backup, but, like, that... That kind of puts the stress on good practice, you know, or good oh, practices. Yeah. Well, it's like, where do you even put the backup in the chain so that the corruption can't affect the backups too? Oh. Anyway, that's that's podcast. Nobody listens to podcast talk. They want to they want to hear about everything else. And yeah. I, I do have a good topic for today that was kind of just been sitting on the back burner, but I would love to bring to the front. Because it's a big one. Like, there's just a lot of things that are affected by it. There's a lot of of ways that both beginners and professionals are haunted by this question throughout their whole career. And I I never fully get a handle on it. Uh, I, my opinion about it's always changing. But we all need to deal with it. And that's just the idea of when does gear really make a difference? Like, when is it true that, you know, the best camera is the one you have with you? And when is that completely not true? And you actually need the best camera in the world to to do what you're working on. Um, And, you know, we'll talk about this both in terms of photo and video. I mean, I think, Chris, now you're you're focused a little more on video in your career, but I think there's a few more photographers listening than video producers. But I think a lot of the rules and the ideas apply regardless to what you're doing. I, I think many creative pursuits have similar rules of return on investment. I really haven't uh, come to terms with this. It is something I wrestle with constantly, but I know that earlier when I first started, I was more on one side of this opinion and I'm now more on the other side. So I used to be quite gear centric and I know that actually the way whatever companies create both gears as well as tutorials, uh, their business model was to influence me when I first got into the industry. And I know that for people that are just beginning right now, that is even a greater pressure because a lot of how creatives make their living is from other creatives right now. You get money specifically selling if it's presets or if it's plugins or if it's tutorials we, that is a huge, a huge part of this economy. And to not realize that when you're first beginning is, um, it's unfortunate because I know I was so into thinking that 
as soon as I get this camera, as soon as my computer's fast enough, as soon as this, and they were all such classic alibis instead of something like, I even remember caring so much about technique. And I read a quote once that said, stillness of hand will never make up for emptiness of heart. And it is true that what you actually create has and should always have more to do with the quality of the image than how you do it. And it, I guess, still comes down to questions like how important is craft? Because you can still master craft, but is craft the thing that should get the attention or is the thing you're making with that craft the thing that should get the attention? I think what frustrates me most when I see other people discuss this or or when, when you get your first advice, a lot of it is boiled down to pretty simple ideas. And I mean, this can apply to anything. This is like a life less a rule of life that if you just take uh, simple short quotes and then completely live by them without really analyzing them or finding where they are and aren't applicable, you're, you're going to be shortchanging yourself. You're going to be missing out on a lot of subtleties. So, you know, again, so I'll often refer to the best camera. So what do you have with you on the, like the idea that just being able to take a picture is what really matters in the moment because then your creative mind and your uh, ability to compose and react to the moment and tell a story is is all that's going to matter. I know this just happened to me actually the other day. Um, and part of what I was proud of that I had trained my mind in a slightly different way. And this is just for like a personal, um, like a, taking photos in my personal life, not client work or anything. But it's that I trained myself to be completely competent as an iPhone photographer. I've, I've spent a, a lot of time not only just shooting on my iPhone as like a primary camera, but just teaching it, understanding what it is when you start editing the files and so on and so forth. So I, I was comfortable with it, but I brought my DSLR uh, with my girlfriend to a mountain and we climbed to the top of this mountain. And I really wanted these photos because I thought this is just going to be perfect. It's a beautiful night. And I took a photo with my DSLR in the parking lot as we were starting. And I took the photo and I looked on the back on the LCD and it said, there was no card inside. And I was like, <laughs> oh my Whoops. God, I know exactly how it happened because I took my camera backpack and right at the last minute, I made the decision to put my camera and a, a, another lens in a bigger backpack and all the extra cards are on my camera backpack. And I just, I know exactly how that happened. But what turned out to be incredible was it released me from this high level pressure of shooting all these options at all this high, like, you know, more or less the best quality I can shoot on my DSLR. And it, it put me into a more constrained kind of role with my iPhone. Like, you know, I know where the files get maxed out. I now currently shoot everything on my iPhone in the Lightroom app. So I sh like I said on a previous podcast, I shoot everything DNG. So they're all raw. So I know what kind of leverage I have with those files and the photos that I ended up taking, well, granted it was wonderful light. It was fantastic. And I was at the top of a mountain in the Rocky mountains. So like the subject was amazing, but the photos turned out to be like, they're just as good. I love them. And I'm not going to say that my, like I'm currently shooting on an iPhone seven plus as well. So it's not like I'm saying, Oh, I have a pinhole camera like the iphone 7 plus is a remarkable technological machine 
but it definitely isn't what my DSLR is in terms of aesthetics and latitude and what the data, you know, as it gets written into the file is it's, it's a lesser camera. And I just liked that I had more intuition that led me to a higher level output, not the gear. And that is something that I want to plan to do with less and less and less for the rest of my life. I don't like thinking that we might be, we might not like we, we might be nothing more than modern people using modern tools right now. And that stresses me out that we are actually not as good as previous generations in terms of creating art and coming up with solid visions and, and using less because we aren't pressured in the same way to create good ideas and, and like create photos instead of take photos and, and think proactively instead of reactively. And we might actually be coming, we might be becoming worse. I, I actually don't know, but I like thinking that my personal journey, I'm now steering myself to, to, to think about photographic principles, more think- like composition, more like what is it that I'm photographing and why. Even that way of framing it in terms of like, are we getting worse? It it also depends. Like that simplifies it to a point of of that we are all following a similar path. Whereas at the same time, there's just a lot more people taking any photos at all. Like there's a lot more people that are able to take a good photo because now there's amazing cameras in our phones. So there's a lot more. There's a lot more bad photographers, but there's a lot more mediocre photographers as well. And I also believe because of that, there's a lot more great photographers. Like, I think it's surprising how often you'll see incredible Instagram accounts that are iPhone only. And to an untrained eye, it's not always obvious at all. Like, you can look at somebody's brilliant Instagram account and it feels like everything is shot on Hasselblad. Everything must be really pro gear. And the difference is that they're not posting photos where the light is bad. Where the comp- where the composition didn't work out, where like when it doesn't work, they don't post it, you know. So yeah. that's that's kind of the const- maybe I don't know. My f- first first intuition about this is maybe the biggest constraint: you don't get to take as many opportunities when you have lesser gear or or cheaper gear or something like. You are forced to just let more images slide by without any attempt to capture them because you realize. Oh, that's just not going to work. Like, or, or even you take the photo and then and then you see that it didn't work. But uh, easy examples are low light, uh, dynamic range. Um, you know, th- there's all sorts of ways that you can just be missing out on opportunities. Yeah, and like I know this is kind of a basic example of of the limits, fundamental limits of the wrong gear. So this has happened to any person who has only had their iPhone and who sees like a full moon. And it's like, oh, I got to take a picture of it. <laughs> it's like, good yeah. luck, you know. And when you, especially when you learn more about optics and, and like a lot of people that first get in, don't understand what the long lens and compression really does. And that it, it is fundamentally based on that gear. It's, it's not just that you can punch in closer to something. It's that it only works because that gear works that way. I listened to a whole podcast the other day, um, Omnibus, which I super strongly recommend. I'm really enjoying it. And it was all about the illusion of the moon size of the moon. And they're talking about like different ways that you can make it disappear. So for one thing, it, that it's the most widely perceived illusion in the world. Like every culture, everywhere, everyone sees this. Children see it. Adults see it. 
animals might see it. It's it's just kind of universal, but then there's like easy ways to make it go away. Like if you close one eye, for example, and I just tried this the other day, the suddenly the moon does get quite a bit smaller. Um, mm. And if you can only see the moon, so a simple way to do it is like make a little circle with your fingers so that you can only see through a tiny little hole. Look through that so you're only seeing the moon and not the surrounding area. All of a sudden, instantly, it gets so much smaller. I know it's kind of a side note, but it, it it gives you a bit of an appreciation for the that's what the camera is going to see. Like you are falling for a human illusion, but everything optical that can see doesn't see that same illusion. And the same yeah. thing can go for different types of light or you know uh, different colors, especially color temperature, which is can take a while for people to start seeing. Well, one thing I guess. I want to go to um, how can you frame it to say that gear actually does matter? Oh, um, I have a lot of ways. <laughs> there's a lot of ways that we can frame this this um, this conversation, but I think it's kind of like saying it's like when is enough enough? Like, do you have enough to do what you need to do based on what you need to do? And a lot is overcompensating, having way too much, and it's it's like as a metaphor, thinking that you need to climb climb like a ten foot wall and you have a hundred foot ladder. It's, it's all of the metaphors that can be thought of just having way too much. And this is something that can curse, uh, curse you. Like for instance, you have, I think it was in the podcast when I said I shoot, uh, in the Lightroom app and I shoot raw and you were like, I, I can't do that. It would fill up my phone way too fast. Mm -hmm. And that's a good example of why shoot raw all the time. Like, do you need that? And for you, you like, no, I don't. Like I can ditch those colors and that's fine. And I'm good shooting compressed or shooting with, uh, you know, compression applied to the image. And like, for me, I, I probably am shooting too often on, on an unnecessary format, just thinking, Oh, I might grade it, you know, liberally, or I might, I might actually put a big adjustment on this, but another example, just, uh, in cinema is there's not only a bunch of different types of lenses optically, but then there's a bunch of weird lenses that people don't know about. Like there's a lens called a periscope lens that essentially is like a periscope, like on a submarine where it has several mirrors in it, right? So you can extend the lens like really far away from the camera, or you can like go, you can point the for camera forward and it's like a zigzag that the, that the lens will make. But how I learned about it was um, that I saw a shot that uh, Khalid, uh, my friend Khalid shot a uh, commercial where the camera needed to push in between a bunch of uh, chess pieces as mm. a chess game was happening. And it's this really skinny, long lens that extends like three feet or four feet away from the camera. Right. And I was like, how did you get that shot? And he sent me the photo of the lens. I was like, oh, my God, what That's the crazy. hell is this thing? But uh, that's so specific, obviously. And or the I other one, what's it called? The the diopter thing that splits the focus so that yeah, both like, sides are in focus. Todd Vaziri is always posting examples of those. Well, it's that's like a like the split diopter yeah. is like yeah. You, I don't know. It's hard to describe. But they're crazy expensive, right? They're like two hundred grand. <laughs> yeah, they're and they're crazy looking too. You have to use them with so much nuance. I used to think actually that when I saw movies and I could see that technique, I used to think that they just locked off the camera and shot two pieces of film and mm -hmm. just cut the film in the half. 
but it turned out to be the split diopter and it's an optical trick, right? But that's, I mean, it's a good, both of these lenses are good examples of like, oh, is that, is that worth it? The, the whole point is what, like, what are you doing? Because if you're doing YouTube, you don't need specialty lenses. You don't need to spend. Maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, or, or maybe you I do. Did, I mean, I, yeah. I, like if you have, if you're doing a slow motion channel, then you need a high speed camera. Um, but it's like, it's all about needing to figure like, what's your return on investment investment going to be. Um, and I think also a good general principle to introduce here from the beginning is the truth of diminishing returns as you spend too. Uh, and this will apply at, at the kind of all levels and begin, whether you're buying beginner cameras and as you scale up to the professional levels that, um, you know, if, if we call it the 80, 20 rule or use the 80, 20 rule that you get, 80% of the performance, um, wait, how, how would that actually apply? Basically, for, for like a me- moderately priced camera, you get 80% of what you're looking for. And you're only paying more and more for that extra 20% and gradually 10% and 5% and mm-hmm. 2%. Well, and um, it starts getting really expensive to get that final perfection of, of quality, but you get most of it right away. Yeah, and uh, well, I, I know I have... Um, one set of wisdom that's come from the 3d world. There's a, uh, a guy who's really popular in the, um, like cinema 4d and 3d community. Um, Mike Winklevoss, I think, but he goes by Beeple, and, um, he is popular for doing an everyday render, uh, for like the last 10 years. So he's phenomenally good, but I heard him once say when someone asked, um, how do you get, like, how does one get better at this and how does someone get more kind of creative and, and better? And his single tip was spend less money. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just so easy to think the answer is in the next plugin or the next thing or, and it is when you don't have that and you have to actually think of like proactively think of what your concept is, like, what are you actually doing? And it matters so much, but obviously this just, is above a certain bar, right? Like you can't, if you're taking his advice, you at least need, if you're going to follow him, Cinema 4D, which is an expensive program. And then you need a, <laughs> yeah. you need a computer that can run it. So it's not like you can get a cardboard box or like, it's not the same as writing where you have a blank piece of paper and a pencil, Like you still need gear and it still needs to run. And, and there is a point of, it's like the point of diminishing returns. I don't know how to describe this um, or the right language, but you know, when you haven't spent enough money, like they always say that if you think, if you think it's expensive hiring a professional, then try and hire an amateur because it Mm -hmm. ends up being more expensive. This is kind of true of, of like pinching pennies on gear too. You know, when you get something that's cheap just to save money and it turns out to be nothing but headaches and then it stops you from your creative process right yeah well it's like there's that sweet spot that's so weirdly hard to find what i think is most frustrating to the simplified version of it is when people that have the gear already are giving out that advice that it doesn't matter what you have but they're currently shooting on a red and have a, a full lens selection um yeah you know it it's like it it cannot matter and I think the way to make it not matter. So if you are in a position where you don't have very much gear yet, and you're really trying to make it work, um, you can, like you absolutely can make it work. 
But the way to do it is to set a target that is accomplishable with the gear that you have and understand what the constraints are. So like I'll go through some really specific examples on the iPhone. If you're making a movie with just an iPhone, you have to be aware that the microphone always needs to be close to the subject. And since you don't have an external microphone that's not going to move around, that means the camera needs to be close to whoever's talking all the time. So that starts to sort of define the way you're telling your story. So that lends well to vlog style things where the narrator is right there and you see their face and when they're speaking, um, it's, it's okay for the camera to be close. Um, you, uh, you, you also, I mean, and then you have massive advantages of not distracting people around you. You're not going to get kicked off of a subway or, uh, have security guards escort you out of a building or ask what you're doing. I mean, there's definitely a lot of interruptions I've had as I, when I'm working with bigger cameras and as the camera shrinks down, even if it goes from a DSLR to a mirrorless, less people are paying attention to what you're doing in a really useful way. You also might feel less self-conscious about what you're doing. So if you've defined a goal of the ty- the type of content you're creating plays to the strengths of the gear that you have, you can massively succeed. You can become uh, hyper successful. You can, you know, have a million subscribers and uh, big sponsorships or whatever it is your goals are. Like you you can achieve them as long as it is in line with what you are using to create that content. Mm. Yeah, and I I don't know, there's something about you know, you're saying more or less that uh, when you have less or a smaller camera, it can be used to your advantage, and it's very true. And it's true. I, I, I think of a less capable thing as well. Where I, um, I think as creative people, we don't we don't quite see this the same. Where you'd think you're only creative when you're taking photos, but creative problem solving is also being creative. Like, okay, I don't have a good camera that can do this or that. What can I do with what I have? And you can, with limits, do so much more. And this is what I, what I at least know about myself is this. And again, I, you just said this, it's like, it always comes from the people that, that, uh, have the red camera or whatever. And granted I have two computers right now. I have an iMac and and a PC. That's just a workhorse. And I, I, I now see that that isn't actually what I needed. I actually am still searching to find the right content and the right message and to make the right type of thing. And I, I almost wish I had more constraints and I, I truly felt that when we shot our project, um, we, we split like the documentary that Olaf and I made uh, state of the art, we split, it was about 80% shot on Alexa MIDI mini and 20% shot on a uh, Canon C200. And, it was pretty disheartening when really beautiful footage didn't make a story. I, right. I like it, it really kind of felt crappy cause it feels like that's the secret and, and really beautiful mm-hmm. lighting and all that. It's like, Oh, as soon as we'll get that, we'll have it. And, um, I guess I'm, I'm part of like, I like where I'm at in terms of reflecting, uh, reflecting on these things right now, because I've always wanted to get here where, I'm challenged by the limits of my ideas and my brain, not the gear. And it's only when you start to have the option to create whatever you want, 
with a bunch of good gear that you start to maybe feel that way. And I don't know that everyone feels that way, but it's definitely been my experience. So actually, I have, an, I have one more really good example of when you can have a huge advantage with, say, an iPhone. The image stabilization in a phone lens, especially for video, is really powerful. Like when you're walking, it, it feels st- stabilized. It feels smooth um, to the point that it could almost compete with some bigger camera gimbals. Like sometimes when I see iPhone footage, I'm like, is that on a gimbal? Is that on an Osmo? But it's not. It's just that that's what the camera can do on its own. And if you have a bigger camera, like you're constantly fighting with camera shake. I I constantly realize that, oh, I I want this shot to be moving. I would love to be walking during it. It would be more interesting. It would be better. But I just can't. I can't move the camera smoothly enough to use that kind of a shot. But I could do it with an iPhone. Um, yeah. So, well, I, I think this is worth contemplating as well is what, what are you making and what value is it that that thing that you're making, what, what value does it actually have? So it has a lot to do with just scarcity and abundance, um, or supply and demand. Like you gotta think that when there was no photos, no cameras at all, you know, when photography is just beginning to have a camera automatically puts you in a position to create something of value immediately because it's scarce and people are like, wow, it's amazing compared to like, well, in just using photography as the example, it's, it's becoming less and less value, uh, valuable photos are becoming less and less and less valuable. And they will at some point become even less valuable because they're becoming more ubiquitous because gear is becoming more democratized and it's not special. And we now have seen that like podcasts is a good example as well, where there's just a lot of podcasts and a lot of content where it's not the ability to just have a podcast or make it anymore. It comes down to how interesting it is and what are the ideas and what are you actually talking about? And it's, it's that you don't really hit that inflection point or that point of distress until you reach ubiquity where whatever gear is sought after or, or would give you the advantage. It's when that becomes ubiquitous or democratically available to everybody that it becomes non-important or it flattens the the bar, right? Where everyone can do it. So it's not special anymore. It's funny. You were saying before about the circle of people creating content about content creation, because that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> and oh, also absolutely. a lot of what, uh, you know, a lot of what I, I post on my YouTube about and when I'm doing camera reviews or really creation centric videos, I think about that so much. I'm like, there's a point where like YouTube could just become this circle of like people watching videos about how to make videos about people watching, uh, wait, no, I, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah, it, can, I know it exactly. can just become uh, the uh, snake eating its tail of like, what are we doing here? And um, well, it's kind of funny just in, in a philosophical sense of what the hell is the whole point of like project civilization. Uh, you know, uh, it's just yeah. a bunch of people making stuff for people that buy that stuff that need that stuff to make other stuff, to buy the stuff, to make the stuff to. Well, when like, the crazy stuff is when I, the crazy thing is when I start realizing how many kids absolutely their dream job is to become like a U- YouTuber. Uh, meaning, meaning what? I don't really know what that means, but it's becoming a real thing where in classrooms, like a lot of kids will say that that's what they want to be when they grow up instead of a fireman or a policeman or a, yeah. a you well, know, a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. Um, they're gonna, 
they're going to YouTube. Um, they're going to entertain, like we're all just going to entertain each other all the time. Um, yeah. And but, like that, you know, they're one of my favorite documentaries. Um, it was made a few years ago. It's free online. It's called press pause play. And in it, it, it tackles and talks about this subject of what, what does the democratization of art creation mean when the crowd at a concert believes itself to be the center stage act? Each person is the act and each person is the performer. What does it mean when we, when we don't have a separation and we don't know where to point our attention and the one guy says more or less, it just becomes signal versus noise and it becomes cacophony. It just becomes just indistinguishable noise everywhere. And that is a, it's a great documentary, very worth everyone's time, but it kind of asks, is the democratization of art creation good or bad? And we definitely just know that it is and it's happening but we have a bunch of this kind of obsession about potentially the wrong things. And that's kind of a a, a weird word to use wrong because that implies some right or or wrong way of doing things. But I know that the, the, the problem with chasing the elusive horizon of gear is that it not only just keeps going, but it is even getting worse where even more stuff is being made and there's even more things to tell you that you can't be get creative unless you have this thing. And it's like overwhelmingly saturated with, with stuff. And I just think we're all going to have our own personal relationship with how much stuff do we actually need? And we'll all find ourselves in some sort of stuff hoarding, you know, reality and it'll be plugins or presets or cameras or whatever. And we'll all have our own personal relationship with it. And uh, I I do think it's something that, although we can talk about it as a culture, we all have to just go inside of our own lives and ask ourselves these kind of questions is, do I actually need this? And what do I actually need based on what what I want to make? And can I get creative and be resourceful instead of constantly thinking I need new resources? An example that I always think is funny is seeing people shooting graffiti. Like this is really common. I'm sure people are listening that that do this, and I've definitely taken photos of graffiti or things written on walls before. Um, I totally don't blame anybody. Like we're all looking for interesting subjects. It's it's a reasonable thing to do. But what's funny is that it it like it's we we do it so much that it kind of becomes its own genre of just taking photos of pretty things on walls, and now the way that Instagram works, there'll be like hotspots, especially say in LA or New York, there'll be a corner that was painted specifically to be Instagrammed. And then we all go and we stand in front of it, take the photo and put the hashtag on it. And you can search the hashtag and see a thousand people posting photos of the same painting. Maybe the person is switching who's standing there, but there's this feeling of like, we're slightly taking credit for the cute photo we took, but it was so intentionally created, like, and and it really is. Who whose art was the, like? Was this ever the photographer's art? Well, it seems pretty clear in a lot of situations that the original artist is the only real artist going on here, right? Um, but we, you know, it's just a thing that happens. Like, I, I don't fault anybody for it, but it's it's something we don't spend any time thinking about. 
There is an amazing Portlandia sketch about this where <laughs> oh, everything everything is art. And it's, uh, you know, uh, someone steals a purse and they're like, hey, stop. And it's like, hey, I'm. this is like public art or this is a performance art. You know, this is about how society values, you know, personal goods. And it's just it just keeps going and going and going. And like, just check it out. Obviously, Portlandia, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's always, I wanted, always good. There's there's one thing that I wanted to remember to say uh, before we. Um, and cause I know you really want to talk about a new piece of gear that, that has come into your world that you are. Yeah. Enough of this crap here. Let's get excited about gear. There's one single thing I wanted to work into this conversation. I have it written down in front of me that I really envy, um, creatives of the past that did more with less. And like we said in the long, in the lost episode of Olaf and, and you and I, Olaf and I, for visual effects inspiration, we constantly say to each other as to, as to call ourselves out on excuses, we will say Jurassic park was made in 1992. So in terms of computer generated, really good content, it was, it was created with much lesser computers. So we just don't make excuses. Right. But the example that I wanted to give was I watched a engineering video on uh, I believe the YouTube channel is the eight bit guy, I think anyway, but he's an engineer that breaks down like old classic, uh, tech. And he talked about how they actually built, uh, eight bit video games like Nintendo and super Nintendo video games with, um, a very limited amount of hardware and the kind of highly, uh, crafty ways that they created, you know, really robust images, like with only maybe four colors or six colors or, different sprites and stuff like that. But one of the things I learned in that, that blew me away is, I don't know if you remember this, you must remember this, that in when super Nintendo came out, there was some games that were like platform games that were better and they were more expensive by like 20 or $30 too. Mm -hmm. The reason that some of those games were more expensive is because there was a limited amount of hardware inside the machine and the cartridge that the game came on was expansive hardware. Oh, there was okay. extra RAM in the cartridge that for, when you plugged it in, for it what? could use itself to I create higher level graphics. I remember like there being RAM extensions for the N64 and stuff. But oh, this was, you're saying this was for way Super earlier. Nintendo. Huh. For Super Nintendo, yeah. Oh, I, they, didn't, I they, didn't know that. They actually put hardware to expand the capability of the machine in the cartridge. So when you plug it in, it's like it, it builds a bigger machine that can make better graphics, right? The best example I, that I remember was on Sega. There'd be the, when they did Sonic and Knuckles, there was a version of it where there was like a cartridge that had space for another cartridge to clamp in over top. So you, you'd buy the regular Sonic, but then you'd buy Sonic and Knuckles, which had that extra space and you'd stack the two cartridges to play. The, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so funny. I wonder because I know you, I think you're a little bit in the loop. You game right now, right? Uh, when I can. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, what's so funny is just thinking how removed super Nintendo references and, and Sonic and Knuckles references are really um, to, to like current gaming. It's, it's phenomenal. The difference between actually, you know, what's kind of funny just as a note is our age. I think we're about the same age. We are like the video game generation. Like the first systems came out and were sold to us as kids at our ages, you know, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we're a tiny bit late, but 
I mean, I yeah, the NES, the Super, the the Nintendo, regular Nintendo, was yeah. my first system. Oh yeah, and what a system! I actually still have mine. Oh wow, cool! It's still in the box. It's still in good condition. Whoa, that's I hooked it up. I hooked it up to my projector a couple of years ago uh, at my place, and the amazing thing about when you have an HD projector, like you know, I have a 720p projector, <laughs> mm-hmm. is the eight bit graphics aren't fuzzy they're just blocky right that's cool they're crazy high resolution but they're just blocks wow so i i couldn't believe how clear it looked and it was like the entire wall you know it's like 12 feet wide screen playing nintendo i've been thinking a lot lately that like we we grew up in the perfect time for video games because anything starting now if you if you're 12 years old and you're starting to really get into video games right now, they are not going to have the leaps and bounds that we had. Um, no. You know, like we, the, the difference between that first NES when I was playing the Ninja Turtles and Mario compared to when I was turned into adult and, you know, it was uh, Zelda 64 and Mario 64 and Final Fantasy 7 that leap is so profound and enormous. Actually, I was a junior high Final Fantasy Seven. What was it? So it's the things now, though. I mean, I just played Uncharted Four. I mean, it's just crazy how much I was able to experience and how exciting seeing those leaps were. We're not going to get that again, even if we move to VR. Even if everything, like everything else, is going to become a lot more gradual, and it already is close enough to photorealistic that the the jumps ahead of us won't be so profound or they won't change the experience in the way that that we have them change Uh, well and you know of course based on that logic we're all living in the simulation you know that right like that's already happened goes without saying (laughs) yeah like indistinguishable photorealistic reality that's built into a simulation had to have been created in the past, and we are currently in that simulation. All right, that's that's another episode. Real. We don't have time. For that <laughs> okay, here I have a good idea though. Like, let's do a little exercise before we change topics of some specifics because I do want i I want I like getting excited about gear. Um, some certain types of objectives, and let's talk about what gear you would want, like kind of the minimum and what you'd get from upgrading. So I did a quick list here, and let's start by talking about if you want to be an Instagrammer. Like if you just, you know, you want to, you want to post good Instagram photos. Uh, it's a good place to start. And and that is a place that you, I believe you can have full success on a phone. You, you don't need any external stuff. You can just have whatever half decent phone you have and do a pretty great job. Am I right? Like you don't need an SLR. Well, I, well, an SLR, are you kidding me? Like that's kind of a leap, you know, it's yeah. probably mirrorless or, or, um, or a phone and then like, okay, you, you know, the real answer to this is just that there is no description to what becomes popular on Instagram other than the cliches of Instagram. But if you shoot on film right now, you probably have a better chance to become, uh, to stand out, right? If you shoot on medium format you have a little bit of a different aesthetic. If you shoot on like, do you remember, um, Jason Lee, um, actor, uh, he was oh, in mall yeah, rats. Yeah, right. yeah, he's he's an amazing photographer. He shoots on large format slide, mm-hmm. and you know, um, 
I, I obviously you can make anything work. I think that the current iPhones, especially like, holy shit, can you ever get good images out of them? And then it has everything to do with just knowing your camera. You know, you, you know where it thrives and where it doesn't. So you don't shoot, like you said, in at night, you don't, unless you have your extended lenses and stuff for your iPhone, you don't shoot long lens. Uh, well, obviously that, that really helps, but Yes, absolutely. It has everything to do with whether or not you have an ideas and continuity and a style and you're actually followable and you're making content that's adding value to people's lives. It doesn't have to do with the latitude or yeah, whatever. It'll never, like that's getting it'll never crazy prevent you from succeeding. Whereas if we move on to so the next example, I've got portrait photographer. Now all of a sudden you're in a situation where not having the right gear will prevent you from having a career. <laughs> you can't get by on, on super minimal stuff. So some examples in there know, that, that you have to have, uh, you know, the, the lenses that work for your style. I mean, you might be somebody like, there are people that use relatively wide lenses, but like typically things like something that covers around 85 millimeters, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, and you need something that, will be able to have the resolution that people are going to be, that clients will require. So depending on whether it's for like personal family use, which probably has pretty small megapixel requirements, or if you're doing something more commercial where uh, let's say it's uh, like headshots of CEOs, then all of a sudden they're going to need a lot bigger final images. Um, but you know, it, it like that stuff is somewhat variable depending on who your clients are supposed to be. And you're like, if you've just, if you have created a style that has created demand and your style is whatever limit you've embraced and whatever, you know, you've created with it, then you will get hired for that. And you can control that. You can absolutely shoot on. You could be, you could, you absolutely could. And you know that it's way too, it's like the bar if we flatten it out and we say that portraits can only be shot, but portrait lenses at the, you know, the lens, the, the, the compression that matches the eye in between 50 and 85 millimeters, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's way more about, uh, the, the story you create. Also, it has to do with what you can create in post, right? If you, if you shoot and composite and do all that stuff, you can get really creative if you get known for that style. And then it's how you build your business to support that. If you put your Facebook ad up and you're like, I offer portrait photography and somebody that doesn't know you calls you up and is like, hey, I, I need some portraits taken. And you show up with a wide angle lens or a iPhone, you're going to let them down. Um, so like there's always room for being an exception. Like there are musicians that have had success with toy instruments. Um, like you can, you can, the niches always exist, but you, you can also create your own walls to your success by lacking out on things that are like expected by other people that are in your, in your same community. No, and I, I agree. You know, I agree at the heart of this conversation. I totally, you know, I see where you're coming from, but it's becoming way too standardized that this gear is expected and it's the norm. And like, I just think one of the things to ask yourself is, am I being different or am I the same? Am I a commodity or am I a luxury? Like, what am I actually selling? And granted, sure, you say, I like... A lot of people do this. They buy an SLR or a mirrorless camera and they instantly thought, think, oh, I'm now 
good enough now that I have the gear. And then they're just the exact same as everyone else that has that gear or that lens or whatever. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not a minimum, but it's the same as like, you need to, you could define requirements for the height to play in the NBA. Like you don't need to be six, five, you don't technically need to be six feet either, but if you're not, the odds of you being there are pr- become pretty low. Well, yeah, and you you then you then succeed in spite of those limits instead of you know because of something, right? Yeah. You and you, I I have met Earl Boykins, who was one of the shortest people in the NBA. I met him at a Denver Nuggets game, and he how short is he? Of, I don't know. He's like five three, maybe five two. What? He what? He played on the Denver Nuggets, uh, and he could dunk just like um, Spud Webb and. There is, granted, of course, there's less. It's like the average, um, you know, the aggregate, the distribution on a plot, uh, on a curve, right? There's obviously just more people that are taller. So, of course, that that helps you get in. But I do think that in the single case, it's still worth a person just asking, are my ideas any good? And am, am I followable? Am I creating stuff of value? And if you go into a commoditized kind of practice of, you know, shooting with shallows at the field with an 85, 1.2 or 1.4 or whatever. And it's, I don't know. Uh, then you're, you, you end up struggling potentially with, um, yeah, how, how boring and monotonous and repetitive that can be instead of potentially offering something that's unique about you as a shooter or, or unique about you as a photographer or creative. So I don't know. I'm just, I don't want to leave that unsaid. I suppose is, is right. there anything. I, I'm not saying that I'll either you say is it. right or wrong. <laughs> uh, I also want to touch on uh, event photographers. So, um, you know, like this is another thing where you can totally carve out your niche. Uh, you know, Kirk Maston has some good information about how he will. Oh no, actually I'm thinking of Jonathan Canales who has done stuff with Kirk, but um, has talked about how he'll shoot weddings almost exclusively with a, I guess it's an 80 millimeter on a contact 645, which I think, I think he really single-handedly popularized that camera a lot and his work is amazing. It's, it's really fantastic event work, wedding work, but um, that's the kind of thing where like, if people are hiring you specifically for that, that totally can work. But if you want to sort of be able to just show up at, at any event and sort of meet most expectations without carving out yeah. your own niche, it's something like, I'd say you got to have fast autofocus, maybe not super fast uh, frames per second. Like, I think you could get by if it's relatively slow, which I yeah, slow to me helps. is like three frames per second. Like, that, you, you can survive. But if there's like a kiss at a wedding you want like it's really nice to have five maybe seven frames per second or like what's what's the new sony a9 is like 20 <laughs> um which is wild oh it's yeah it's too too fast i guess it's not that wild when you think of something like the the cinema cameras like a red epic or a dragon or whatever they're shooting 5k <laughs> 6k 8k at 60 frames a second yeah that's crazy So it's really just the computer that can process that data and the memory card that can write it but still it's crazy what photo cameras are becoming oh for sure and then i mean i think you should also generally show up with Something like a 24 to 70 uh, is sort of expected. I mean, you don't have to. You can have a different style. Uh, and, you know, your kit should probably also include something longer. 7200 is kind of standard. Um, and for me, that's an event kit is, is kind of those 
two lenses and then I might actually have a 50 millimeter in my bag in case I want to bring the depth of field down and, and a periscope lens and a periscope lens and a diopter, a split diopter. Split diopter. And, yeah. yeah. Of course you can't leave the house without them. And then I put them on a drone. Um, yeah, of course. Absolutely. And then for filmmaking, uh, so the ones I wrote is like a vlogger, documentary filmmaker and a commercial, uh, production, which, um, yeah, I'm tying com- commercials also similar to like, um, film, like big budget film. Cause the the needs get a little bit similar. So like vlogger is, uh, you know, kind of like Instagram where you totally can make it work with an iPhone. I think you should aspire for more, especially in terms of audio. Um, getting some kind of mic on your camera makes a really big difference. It really helps out. I don't know what, what else do you really need? Like having some shallow depth field can help, but it's not really important. Nobody's going to fault you for it or not watch you because of it. You know, at, at vlogger levels, I think it's worth getting a point and shoot. So you can zoom in a bit. Uh, you mm-hmm. can, you just have more options, better audio, better quality. Uh, well, I think like Casey Nice, that's a good example of kind of where that uh, balance point is, I guess, because he's made lots of videos about the cameras he shoots on and, and why. And like if it's video, I think right now it really does help shooting 4K, uh, publishing at 4K and just having that pixel density is is good. Or you have the ability to pan and scan and and really get a lot more out of your image. That does help. And I, I'll, yeah, I'll admit. And then um, it's funny, like you say, with gimbals or not gimbals, or do you remember when we first started, you know, you mount it up on a shoulder rig and it's like, when does it actually harm the process? And I know you handhold a lot and like, what are you actually using right now when you do like a vlog style uh, selfie to, you know, like in an airport or whatever, you have like a I'm just, gorilla pod coming out of the bottom or? Usually I'm just holding the camera in most shots. I usually have a gorilla pod with me, but really often in most shots people have seen, I'm I'm just holding the camera. I also know this is an example, I guess, of the same thing I'm trying to talk about where when gimbals first came out, like uh, any stabilizer or Steadicam, um, I think both you and I had one of the first Steadicams, like, you know, that I can't remember. Uh, what I had a glide called. cam. Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. But a lot of people at first expected that as soon as it was balanced on that, that it would just be steady and that it didn't take a skill to do right. it. Yeah. And I can I can create a more stable shot with no glide cam and just, you know, the skill of like bending your knees and orienting and rotating in the right way. And I remember when I first started uh, making, I started making behind the scenes videos and uh, well, at least partially, but I remember I came up with all these types of tricks, like with a tripod, you'd shorten one of the legs of the tripod um, facing the direction you want to do this move. And you then have like a, duo pod i guess but uh you can create like a faux dolly look by just you know moving the camera forward and backward with the two legs to each side and then you can also take all the like either a monopod or tripod you can put it on your like stomach or your belt and you can create a faux like crane shot you know just extending your tripod up in the air and that's the type of thing i loved that i built in terms of intuition versus assuming I need the best crane. And of course I, if I'm going to do a crane shot, I not only, I need to now shop for cranes. And then there's all these reviews about the best cranes and this one, this one has counterweighting and this one has listened to the crane podcast. Yeah. And it's like, just 
just make it happen sometimes, you know? A good place to see great stabilized handheld work is uh, Jesse Driftwood's Instagram stories. He he handholds it all. And it's beautiful. And then uh, documentaries, that it's starting to really blend into vlog work. So vlogs used to actually just be when people would sit down in front of their web camera and just talk yeah. and keep you up to date about their life. And they gradually turned into this documentary style that is, you know, I think of Casey Neistat, he's like, who, who I think of, but I'm sure other people were doing it, that um, it's like making a documentary film every day. You're bringing the camera with you. You're telling a real story. And then sometimes you're also sitting in front of a camera. Um, but that can graduate right up into full-on documentaries that have a budget. So then the, the, the real gear requirements, I think, center around ability to capture the story is the most important thing. Production qualities have gone up because there's more availability of shallow depth of field, more low light uh, cameras with more low light capabilities. Um, People are able to make documentaries look insanely beautiful, but the requirements to me are are actually more around, uh, I'd say like lens versatility so that you're able to like get close and wide shots, like telephoto and wide and audio ability that you're able to capture whoever you need to that's speaking. So sometimes that means wireless labs, or sometimes it means having a boom operator, or sometimes it means having an awareness of your camera operation so that it stays close enough to the subject if your mics are on camera. But but that's what starts to matter there, more so than which camera you're using. Um, you know, your aesthetic can go up if you have a nicer camera, but you can tell the story with a, a lot of these other accessories that are just about being able to capture everything around you. Yeah, and I guess uh, we we know that when the overall bar goes up, which we've talked about in terms of YouTube, that there is still a lot of room for the the overall quality of audio, overall quality of editing, overall quality, quality of video to go up. And it's good when it does, because then it's just an overall better experience. But I just don't know that the rest of the world is, is thinking the same, or a bunch of people thinking the same as me, but I'm totally... I'm way more into ideas now than I am craft. Like, I guess you have to, you have to oversaturate yourself sometimes to get to that place. But I guess the good example is like, I'm liking more talking head style documentaries than I am documentaries with like crazy cinematography that has like a barely above water idea, you know? Well, yeah, I mean the, the greatest documentaries of all time or, you know, PBS Ken Burns stuff. I was watching some of the Vietnam, the new Vietnam series, and it's mostly interviews with footage. So it's mostly editing and interviews and that's it. And it's It's incredible. Ridiculously good. I know. But how about nail, like go dive into your computer. So, okay. A lot of what was talked about in the last episode is the MacBook pro that I ordered. Um, and it's something I was talking about on YouTube lately. I have needed a computer for a long time. Like right now, uh, I'm recording this on a, what, what is this? Tw- I think early 2015, late 2014. Oh, here I'm pulling it up. Uh, early 2015, 13 inch MacBook pro. Um, so that means that it doesn't have a dedicated GPU. It's got eight gigs of Ram and a 2.9 gigahertz core i5 processor. So this is a this has always been a very kind of underpowered machine for what I put it through and I've made it work. Uh it it runs Lightroom pretty well, but it really slows down when I do things like generate 
uh, final images, generate previews, working with 4K on on export, especially. Or once I add any grading, I can't really play back my 4K. So if I that's why I haven't been doing many YouTube videos in 4Ks because I can edit them fine as long as I don't modify anything about the image. But as soon as I add that layer, it totally crushes the system and I can't watch it anymore. So that I'll often end up with mistakes in my video towards the end because I can't play it back smoothly without exporting it. So every time I want to watch the whole video again, I need to export it. Anyway, this is me complaining about my old computer. I also have an iMac that's at uh, my office and I just can't get there very often. Like just the way, the way I work ends up being either at home or on the road a lot. And I don't get to use my big machine too often. So now Apple has announced the 2018 MacBook pros, which to me are the first really worthwhile upgrade in a while. I I wanted to do it at the last generation because they were decent and I was just, you know, feeling the pressure of needing a new computer. But what came up was the keyboard issues where little specks of dust would get under people's keys and the, the whole thing would stop working. And because of the way that the computers are manufactured, it meant that you'd have to take it back to Apple and they'd have to rip your whole computer apart. They couldn't just fix the one key. They'd have to take off the whole keyboard keyboard and reapply it. And uh, now they've added a membrane of silicone that basically tries to keep most of that debris from getting under the key. It's it's not going to be perfect. There's still holes in the corners. So we don't know if it's a solved problem yet, but I'm sure hoping it is. Yeah, you sure hope. Oh, yeah, I can't have a keyboard go down, especially on the road. Like if, if all of a sudden, you know, I just can't type the space bar, uh, it could be a really, really are big you, problem. Are you going to, like when you get this new computer, are you going to be rocking a two computer setup for a bit? Of my previous laptop, yeah. My, like, are you, are you going to oh, carry it around with you? No. So I, no. I think I think I'll almost entirely switch to this computer as fast as I can, basically, because mm. um, I can't I can't manage multiple computers like that. Um, I, and I don't really have room to like just start carrying around an extra computer. Yeah, I'm just wondering, based on like you're hoping that this problem is solved with the keyboard, and I imagine <laughs> it is. This is just yeah. like you think it's very good engineering, and like. But you never really know, and I know that we we had talked uh, before the episode just about um, I don't know. Sometimes when you have one computer and or one operating system, that you know there's a big upgrade that comes out, and you just you have to go for stability. You have to go for it like being stable and usable because if it's not, and if something happens, and it's your primary computer, especially when you're away from your city it becomes pretty, uh, I don't know, you get put in between a rock and a hard place pretty quick. Oh, yeah. We one time arrived in New York, like just as we, uh, actually, no, getting on the airplane, Anya's computer stopped working, just totally wouldn't turn on. Then we arrive in New York and we're there for a job. We need her computer. This is what we're doing the work on. Uh, And yeah, we're like hanging out at the Apple store for hours and hours. Unfortunately, it's open, uh, I think, 24 7 i don't know we were there at midnight and it was packed it was super busy oh, yeah of course so um anyway what, i i never want to repeat that <laughs> yeah and, and hopefully like this new computer what is the thing in your mind that's the biggest leap where like why is this such a better computer i, I was really excited to see a kind of kind of a serious processor bump like adding 
extra cores is a bigger deal than I think a lot of people think. They're like, oh yeah, you know, um, there's there's six cores instead of four. Uh, that's cool. But the last time that more cores were added to the MacBook Pros, I think it was like 2012 or something. Uh, Mark Harmon was talking about it on ATP, but it, it's it's a long time. It's been like a few generations. It's not common that you suddenly get added cores and a lot of applications have become more and more multi-thread optimized. Uh, Final Cut does a great job of util- utilizing the extra cores, so you can see really significant speed increases. So this speed bump was was pretty serious. Uh, I like that they addressed the issue of 32 gigabytes, which, um, I don't know, personally, personally it didn't stress me out that much. Like I said, I've been getting by on eight. Um, I still went, th- actually, and I should also talk about, like, what did I order? But um, I think it was just that they are really recognizing what professionals need. Like this is them taking it seriously and not, uh, I don't know, like we're so worried about Apple going down this road of only paying attention to the iPhone basically and consumer products that are making them all the money. But still somebody needs computer, uh, professionals need computers to develop the apps that are selling these iPhones like uh, hotcakes. But uh, so yeah, here here's my computer. This is what I ordered. I got a 15 inch in space gray, uh, 2.9 core i9 uh, processor. So that's that's the the top one, which had the thermal throttling issues. That is now old news, not a problem. Uh, it's got True Tone. They all have True Tone. It has a Touch Bar. Uh, who cares? <laughs> uh, and the Radeon Pro 560x with four gigs of memory. So that's the the upper one, which is still, you know, they don't put amazing GPUs in these, but uh, but they optimize g- them like crazy. Yeah, they do great things with them, and I don't I don't think it's going to be a big bottleneck for me based on what I've seen for other people. The bottlenecks seem to be the power draw of the laptop, basically. Yeah. Um, and I got thirty two gigs of RAM and a one terabyte SSD. So yeah, and the the one terabyte SSD or is it SSD or flash? SSD. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's going to be huge because these computers are, I think you said they, there's no like modular capabilities at all, right? There's no replacement. It's all soldered. The entire thing. So what you buy this computer as is what it'll be until you, until you get your next one, probably. Right. Yeah, exactly. I can't, I can't change anything about it. Like uh, nothing will change. And honestly, I would have, I really wanted to go up uh, to a two terabyte. Like I could, I could really use that extra space internally. I think it's great that they offered a four terabyte option because, uh, you know, it made for a lot of headlines where people are like, this is the $10,000 computer, which they're actually rounding up from 7,000. But that's because you can add a $3,200 four terabyte hard drive to it, which is like a high end luxury specialty item that is completely bleeding edge. The price will go down in the future, but you know, commercial video editors will buy that in a second. Like that is so worth it for people that need to edit on the road that make good money that have high budgets for their productions. Like it's, it is so important for that type of product to exist. So yeah, you've, you've made that case, I think for what was the iPhone 10, right? Or yeah, totally. X. Like we need these top of the line luxury products. Why is it wrong for Apple to be a company making them? Well, and I don't know the, there's the whole price psychology of just as long as you create the higher end and you have the low end option, people go for the middle 
and it's in pricing psychology thing as well. So I like I get the justification for the fact that, you know, when when you need it, you want those upgradable options. And for the people that are willing to pay for it, that that product exists. It's mm-hmm. uh yeah, it's it's red eye first class, you know? Yeah. So, totally. What I'm really stressed about though is the lack of SD card and the the USB situation. I, I feel like USB-C has not been solved in the way we hoped. Um, I was really excited about USB for, for a couple of years until we've just seen that uh, the cables have like different specs in them and they all look the same. So you can be thinking you're buying a certain type of cable that'll have uh, the ability to pass power through it and it turns out it can't or that it supports Thunderbolt 3 and it doesn't or there's a lot of things that are basically invisible by looking at the cable you're using that will strongly affect the speeds of of what you're doing and also the USB hubs um seem to have somewhat mixed results like they can have dropouts and um I don't know I, I I'm not well, excited about that I I know actually we have to limit this out some point because we can bleed in easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To this is a tease com- to the next one. Yeah, this is absolutely what we talked about in the last episode, the last episode about all the hardware that you can get, what it is to buy a, a new Mac, what it is to compare that to a Windows PC and how you can stack them out. I know we won't even start to talk about eGPUs right now cuz we will talk about that. You, me and Olaf will get together again and we'll do it. We'll, we'll put even more effort in after learning some lessons about, you know, <laughs> our activity monitors and watching our CPUs and GPUs astutely after recording that episode. So we'll have even more to comment on and that'll be a fun episode, but it won't be this one. No, but uh, thanks for helping me get something out there, Chris. And yeah, the next episode's going to come as soon as possible and it's going to be great. And hopefully I'll have a computer by then. Awesome. I'm stoked to see this computer. I want you to wow me with it. And uh, I'm excited to do that next next episode as well. And thanks for making this one happen. Hey, I, I want to be wowed too.